if you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. We are not this week going to focus on creation in all its detail. Eric will cover that next week. He has, you could pray for him, that's no small task. Um, creation in one sermon. Um, we're, we'll touch on it a little bit today. Um, but this week, we're, we're still getting the big picture of Genesis by noticing some themes and threads that run throughout Genesis and the Bible, but start right here. Um, themes and threads are going to show up again and again. Um, as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about uh, going to the high school musicals at CCS when Anna was in theater, how at the beginning of all those classic um, Rodgers and Hammerstein type musicals, they, the orchestra plays a medley of all the songs that are going to be in the musical. And so you just get a taste of each theme that's going to come back later in fullness. And, and that's what Genesis does, and that's what the sermon is intended to do. Now, I was also thinking about uh, uh, weavers or a weaver's loom. I don't know if you've ever seen one or seen a weaver use a loom. Um, you have all these, these threads coming down vertically, but then they take a shuttle. It's a little wooden thing that has a different color thread in it uh, or textile in it, and they use that shuttle to go in and out of the other uh, threads all the way across, and it takes that color all the way across, and then they change it out and use a different color, and they take the shuttle, and it goes all through. These themes that we're going to deal with today and these themes that we're going to find that begin in Genesis are like those threads. Uh, and so uh, the shuttle of God's word is a theme. The shuttle of um, covenant, of kingdom, of God's people, of God's place, all of these themes of God's blessing all of these themes are going to be weaved throughout Genesis and the story, but they start right here. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to, this is like the opening medley of a musical, um, but there will be no dancing. Sorry. Um, so as we read through Genesis 1 here, uh, I want you to pay attention to a couple of phrases that you'll hear again and again. Uh, the ones I want you to pay attention to this morning are God said and the phrase, and it was so, okay? So uh, let's stand together and hear the word of the God who loves us in Genesis chapter 1. I'll read the entire chapter. Listen for, and God said, and it was so. Here's the word of the Lord. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. 
And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, and which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created this great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, <coughs> with which the waters swarm according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the waters and the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I've given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth. Everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you for giving it to us so that we would know you. So that we would know how... To live with you. 
and the place you've put us. Help us to see Jesus this morning. In his name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The death of Queen Elizabeth has uh, been on our minds and hearts a lot lately. Her life and her reign captured the imagination of so many around the world for so many generations that it was the end of the longest monarchy in British history. And though we Americans rebelled against that monarchy, (laughs) we're still fascinated by it, aren't we? Um, The Crown is one of the most popular uh, series on Netflix. Still, some loved the Queen and others loathed her, didn't they? And uh, as I was thinking about that this week, I was thinking about how we also have a love-hate relationship with our leaders. And there's something there that I think says something about all of us. Now listen to this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it twice. For some of you who like to take notes, you can, you'll hear it twice. But here, here's, here's my thought. Everyone longs for a leader they can trust to use his or her power to provide a place and a plan for human flourishing. I want to say that again. Everyone longs for a leader who will use his or her power to provide a place and a plan for human flourishing. And we see that longing coming out in so many ways. Sometimes it comes out sideways. Think about it. This longing for leadership lies underneath so much of our anxiety and angst today. Um, Who our leaders are and what they do will either drive us to despair or give us hope. It's a very important thing to us. For example, think of the war in Ukraine. We pull for world leaders who use their power for the sake of human human flourishing, and we pull against those who don't. Think about how much energy and money and time are spent in our own country fighting with each other about which leader will do a better job using his or her power to provide a place and a plan for human flourishing. We spend so much energy over which leader will do that best job for us. It, 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 it betrays in us the longing for a leader who will, who will do it well. But it even comes closer to home than the global and national scene. What about at work? Anybody, don't raise your hand, anybody ever worked for a bad boss? Anybody ever worked for a good boss? Um, your boss can make or break your flourishing at work. It comes down to school. We, we love and we long for administrators and teachers who will create a place and a plan for students to thrive. We love those administrators. We love those teachers. We, it comes down to the church when we, when we ask, will our leaders be the kind of men we can trust to help create space for us to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus? comes all the way down to 
our homes. When we ask ourselves, will I be the kind of spouse or parent who makes my marriage and a home and my home a place where we all learn together what it means to be a boy or a girl or a man or a woman who is made in the image of God? Leadership means so much to us. Everyone longs for a leader they can trust to use their power to provide a place and a plan for human flourishing. This is exactly the kind of leader the people of Israel who first heard Genesis, they longed for that kind of leader too. God wanted them to know that from the very beginning, he has been using his power to provide a place and a plan for their flourishing. Um, and as they're about to move into the land of Canaan, we heard last week that Moses encouraged them and he said, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. The people of Israel were, were anxious to move into what God had called them to do. And so he had to reassure them that he would be their leader. God would go before them. God would go with them. What they must do is trust God to use his power to do them good. That's what Genesis is about. That's what the whole Pentateuch is about. But the question is, how would they know that they could trust God to use his power to do them good in the place he would put them? I mean, how do we know that? Every other kind of leadership we've seen has failed us. Some bitterly so. And that's one of the reasons God gave them and us Genesis. He wanted his people to know that as they enter into enemy-occupied territory, they're being led by the rightful and righteous king of that little piece of earth. In fact, he's the rightful and righteous king of the entire cosmos. And I think this is why Genesis has so much relevance for us today. Genesis tells us why having a leader whom we can trust has become so important to us. It tells us why it occupies so much of our time and taps into our deepest emotion. Genesis tells us that we were made to be led by a king who gives life. And it tells us why we tend to look horizontally for the kind of leader that can only be found vertically. Because we as God's people are in a similar situation to the first hearers of Genesis. G.K. Chesterton said it this way. He said, in the spiritual world, hell once rebelled against heaven. We find that story in Genesis 3. But in this world, heaven is rebelling against hell. That's what the kingdom of God is up to. Heaven is rebelling against hell. In other words, as citizens of heaven, we're being sent into enemy-occupied territory to rebel against hell by sharing in God's deep gladness and renewing all things. That's what we're here for, Mountain Fellowship. And C.S. Lewis once said, the enemy-occupied territory, that's what this world is. Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. I love that. The rightful king has landed. And Genesis is the beginning of the Christian story. And it will show us that as God's people living in enemy-occupied territory, 
we do have a king who will use his power to give life to us and to the nations. So, this morning, what I'd like for us to do is, is think about how God will use that power, and particularly how he uses that power through his words. Um, I, I think I want to change the title of this sermon to The King's Speech, because it's the king's speech, the king that we're talking about here, that makes a difference. He uses the power of his word to provide a place and a plan for our flourishing. So let's look at that together. Now, I'm going to ask you just to buckle on your seatbelt for a few minutes, because um, I'm, I'm going to fly through some material, okay? We're going to dig in and do a little Bible study, all right? I mean, we're at church after all, right? That's okay, we can do some Bible study. Amen. Let's do it. Be quiet and get going, Jimmy. All right. So, God uses the power of his word. God the king uses the power of his word to do three things. To reveal his kingdom, to create his kingdom, and to rule his kingdom. Okay, that's what we're going to learn in Genesis 1 this morning. First of all, God is the king who uses the power of his word to reveal himself as that rightful and righteous king. Um, the fact of the matter is, there's no way we would even know that this God exists unless he chose to reveal himself to us. And so he has spoken uh, in order for us to know him. So he uses the power of his word to reveal to us that he is the king and he is our king. He has spoken in creation, he's spoken in his written word, and he's spoken in Jesus. So, but how does Genesis show us that God is even revealing himself to be a king? It doesn't say this in Genesis chapter 1. Hello world, I am the king. But it does say it. Let me show you how. First of all, God in Genesis 1, creates realms and appoints rulers to them. Now, Eric might get into this a little more next week. I don't know, but I'm not going to say a whole lot about it except this. If you notice in Genesis 1, God creates day and night. Those are two realms. And he appoints the greater light, the sun, to rule the day, and the lesser light, the moon, to rule the night. If the sun and moon are rulers, what does that say about the one who created their realms and appointed them to rule them? He is their king. He is the king. And it's, it's going to be encouraging to the people of Israel because they've just left a land, Egypt, and they're going into a land, Canaan, that worships the sun and the moon among other aspects of creation. They call the sun a god. They call the moon a god. And God wanted Israel to know that the king who leads them and is with them created the so-called gods of the people who will oppose them. Israel's God is the true king over all gods and kings. And here's another hint that he's revealing himself as king. He created the, the earth, the heavens, and the sea and he filled it with creatures, and he created Adam and Eve to subdue or subjugate the earth and have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the 
heavens and everything that moves on the earth. So if Adam and Eve are rulers, what does that say about the one who created their realms and appointed them to rule them? And besides that, Adam and Eve are created in God's image. And so if they are rulers, what does that say about the one in whose image they've been created? He is their ruler. He is the ruler. He is the king. So God is revealing himself by his word as king. And here's another way. Here's another clue that God is revealing himself as king. He establishes a covenant with Adam and Eve. A covenant with Adam and Eve. What, what is a covenant? Palmer Robertson says that if you, if you boil it all down, a covenant is that which binds people together. So we think of a marriage covenant, binding two people together. Last week I said that, it, that the God at the beginning of your story is a God who created the heavens and the earth to be with you. He wants to be bound together in relationship with you, and this is what a covenant does. By the covenant, persons become committed to one another. Now, where does this idea of covenant come from? Well, the people of Israel would know, would understand, and they would see the pattern of the covenant right here in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, because ancient Near Eastern covenants were, were written all the time. There are treaties between great kings and lesser kings. And these written, these written covenants would have certain elements to them. There would be a preamble to it that would describe the great king and all of his qualities. It then would move into a historical prologue where the actions of that great king are described and, and what that great king will offer to, these, to the lesser king and his people. And then the covenant contract will, will move on into stipulations. Uh, these are what the lesser king agrees to do in response to this relationship with the greater king. And then it concludes with sanctions. What will happen if the terms of the covenant are broken? These are blessings and curses. And then they would cut a covenant. And you may have heard us say before that uh, the great king and the lesser king would then lay out animals in front of them and cut them in half. And the two kings would walk between them as if to say, if I don't keep the stipulations of this covenant, then the sanctions on me will be divide me, shed my blood. And so that's, that's how covenants were made. And, and the people of Israel reading Genesis would know this. They would, they would understand that and they would see in Genesis uh, this historical prologue of the story of how God provided and planned this covenant relationship with humanity. That's chapter 1. Um, it tells us about the great king who wants to be in a binding relationship with people. And, and who is this king? He's the one who made everything just by saying what he thought and speaking what he wanted. And neither life, nor death, nor height, nor depth, nor angels, nor rulers, nothing present, nor things to come, no spiritual powers, no height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate this God from his people. This is what Genesis is showing us. God wants to be in covenant with his people. And, um, and then he has stipulations uh, for them. I want you to 
be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I want you to, in chapter 2, guard and keep this garden that I've given you. Um, I want you to trust me and to work with me. And if they don't, he says, in the day that you eat that fruit of that one tree, you will surely die. So that's the covenant that God is making. And so all of that, the fact that he creates realms and rulers and that he is uh, acting as a covenant king, God is revealing himself as the king of his people. So, secondly, God is the king who uses the power of his word to create a kingdom. So the best definition of the kingdom of God that I've found is by a guy named Vaughn Roberts, and he defines the kingdom of God this way, and I'm going to be using this throughout this uh, series to help, help keep us focused on what the kingdom of God is, because that's one of those big themes that we're going to follow all the way through, and it goes all the way through to Revelation. Uh, here's the definition of the kingdom of God. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And you can see this right here in Genesis chapter 1. God's place and God said. He created the place where he would be in relationship with his people as their king. Ten times in chapter 1, I don't know if you counted them, God speaks. And what happens? And it was so. God speaks his mind, and it is so. Ten times in chapter 1, God speaks, and it happens. So why did Israel need to remember this, that God is the one who created the place? Because as they're moving into Canaan, they they will come across uh, the Canaan religion, which taught that uh, Baal had won an epic, bot- uh, epic battle with other gods to become the divine king of the cosmos, as he called himself. And Israel needed to be reminded that their god was not the one who battled some other gods and won the cosmos as his kingdom. Their god is the one who created the cosmos to begin with. And if he created it, he owns it. He did not have to fight for it. He has reigned on his throne as the supreme sovereign since before creation. And so Israel can rest in this. God created this place, so he owns this place. This God has promised to go before them and dwell with them in this place. And he's done the same for you. And they needed to know that he's the God who can make something from nothing, who can bring order out of chaos. Verse 2 is an interesting verse. It says, The earth was without form or vo- and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering, hovering over the face of the waters. Um, one scholar I read pointed out that uh, Moses is calling this global ocean a void. And that word for void, that Hebrew word for void, is actually the same word as the word for desert. So why is he calling this global deep a desert? It's very interesting. 
Um, Moses uses this same term for desert when he describes the desert wasteland where Israel wandered for 40 years. Why call the deep a desert? Well, what better way to teach the people that the God who will lead them out of the wilderness and give them the promised land is the same God who once divided the waters of the Red Sea so that they, should, they could walk on desert, dry land. And Genesis 1-2 reminds us and them that this is what God has doing, been doing from the beginning. The God of Israel is the one who leads his people from wasteland to promised land, from creation to new creation. This is what he does. He's in the business of making something from nothing, bringing order out of chaos, light from darkness, life from death. This is your God, Israel. This is your God, Mountain Fellowship. So he created a place by his word, but he also creates a people by his word. He creates Adam and Eve in his image. He says, let them have dominion, and God blessed them. And, and he said, be fruitful and multiply and have dominion over all these things I've given you. You see, nothing brings you comfort and confidence like knowing that you belong to the king who made you. When God uh, sends Israel into Canaan, they, they learn that the reputation of their king has preceded them. Uh, Joshua sends a couple of spies into Jericho before they try to take it, and those spies meet Rahab, and this is what Rahab tells them. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Is it anything to do with them? No, she says, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who are beyond the Jordan, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. It gives us comfort and confidence to know that we are the people of God whom he has created. So God is the king. He uses the power of his word to reveal his kingdom, to create his kingdom, and then thirdly, to rule his kingdom for the sake of blessing. God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. Um, God rules by his word. Um, he rules the place, and God said, and it was so. What God creates, he rules. When he made the creatures in the earth and sky and water, in Genesis 1.22, he, it says, God blessed them, saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. He commanded them with his word, and it would be blessing for them to obey him. He rules and blesses by his word. And he also rules and blesses his people by his word. Verse 28, he says, it says, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over every creature. He commanded them, Adam and Eve, and it would be blessing 
for them and the world if they would obey his, his commands. It's fascinating. Genesis chapter 1, there's 10 words of creation, and later in Exodus, there are 10 words of command. Uh, God rules by his word. So, God is the king who uses the power of his word to reveal who he is as king, to create his kingdom, and to rule his kingdom so that those who belong to his kingdom would be a blessing to the nations. That's what he's after. But as we know, Adam and Eve rejected their creator as king, and they submitted to his enemy, to his enemy's words instead. They refused to submit to God's word and obeyed the serpent's word instead. They became enemies of God who responded to God's word with doubt and disobedience rather than trust and submission. They broke the covenant and brought curse on themselves instead of blessing. The people of Israel know they have had that kind of rebellious heart in themselves. (coughs) And in Romans 1, Paul says that all of us have rejected our creator king to worship a a creature king, namely ourselves. When we do not have God as our king, we will do what is right in our own eyes. So, here's our question. How could such people ever have hope that the rightful and righteous king would be for them and not against them as they move into this new land? You see, Israel lived on the other side of Adam and Eve's rebellion against their creator. They knew their own parents' rebellion against him in the wilderness. They knew their own rebellious hearts. Would God still be their king? And we know that our hearts can be just as resistant to God's rule and God's word as theirs were. Will God still be our king? Friends, God's purpose for Genesis is not to look back in despair at human failure, but to point in hope to the faithfulness of God. And that's what we want to get out of Genesis this this year. We We want it to point us in hope to the faithfulness of God. The hope of Genesis is clearly focused on what God would do to fulfill his promises to his people. And he would do that in Jesus. God is still after creating a kingdom of God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. And he will still do it by the power of his word, but his word made flesh. We read it this morning in Hebrews Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins... Jesus, the king, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That word, Jesus, whom John said is the word made flesh, that word is still revealing who the king is. He's still creating his kingdom. In fact, he's recreating his kingdom in and through us 
and he still rules us. So from creation to new creation, the whole story of the Bible has always been about building God's kingdom. And we are the ones he's recreating into his kingdom. We are the traitors who are being transformed by his life and his crucifixion and his resurrection because Jesus, our king, took the curse that we traitors deserve so that all we will ever receive from him from now on is blessing. And the gospel is the word that is the power for salvation, for wholeness, for making all things new, beginning with us. We now live as new creations who will live with him one day in his new creation. And I love this from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Paul says, For the God who said, Let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God is still in the business of recreating kingdom people by his word. By the word who is Jesus. And we now are the new place where God reigns. He created Eden as a temple, and now the church is his temple. And one day, the new creation, the new heavens and earth will be his temple. And he still rules us by a new commandment. Love one another as I have loved you. And notice, we are first ruled by his love for us. Love one another as I have loved for us, as I have loved you. We are first ruled by his love for us, and then we obey his rule of loving others as he has loved us. Friends, Jesus is the king your heart's been longing for. Jesus is the king your heart was made for. Jesus is king, and he rules for our blessing. What are we to do with this? When Jesus came, Mark chapter 1 says, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And a few verses later, he began to say to individual people, follow me, follow me, follow me. What Jesus is saying here in in this message is, rest in the good news that I am your king. Respond to the good news by following me as your king. Friends, you and I live in enemy territory. But the rightful king is landing. Our marching orders are to be citizens of heaven who rebel against hell. Repent, rebel against hell. Believe the good news that Jesus is your king, and follow him. So, friends, here's what I'll ask you to do here at the end. Rest in the word of Jesus and respond to the word of Jesus. Rest in his word of good news that he is the king who loved you so much that he used his power to rescue you from your rebel heart. He loves you so much that he's promised to keep renewing your heart to be like his heart. Rest in that. Rest in it as you move into uh, the places he's called you. And then, out of love for him, respond to his loving lordship over your life 
by being and doing whatever he asks you to be and do. Trusting that whatever that is, is for your good, for your blessing. One way that our men's group that I meet with on Thursday night does that, how we rest in Jesus as our king and we respond to Jesus as our king is we read some scripture every week. You know, we have a little assigned schedule that we're, we're reading the Bible together every week. And then we ask each other two questions in our conversation on Thursday night. What is God saying to you through his word? And the second question is, how are you going to respond? Very simply. I, I would encourage all of us, Mountain Fellowship, Jesus is the king whose word has power. <laughs> and so, ask yourself, whenever you read his word, whenever you hear it preached, ask yourself, what, what is Jesus the king saying to me through his word? And how am I going to respond? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. <laughs> that was... That was a lot. It was rich. I, I enjoyed what you taught me this week. Um, would you help us to rest in the words of King Jesus, rest in Jesus the Word, our King who has come and has uh, done all that is necessary to transform our traitorous hearts. God, help us to rest in the good news that that king loves us and wants us. And then by your Holy Spirit, help us to respond to you as our king, Jesus. Um, help us to, to want to do whatever it is you ask us to do and to be whatever it is you ask us to be because we're convinced that whatever that is is good for us is blessing to us and blessing to the world. Only you can do this. And so we come to your table this morning for the strength that you provide, King Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.